today we talked to translator Fred Schott. Who is? He is a professional translator, interpreter, and author. He's translated the works of Osamu Tezuka many times. Who is? Osamu Tezuka was a 20th century manga artist responsible for the rise of comics in Japan. Like? Like Astro Boy, Phoenix. Okay, there we go. And the others. <laughs> That's what I'm looking for. Cool, so we talked to that guy. Yes, we did. I and was wondering who we were talking to that whole time. Yeah, but now you know. Now it all makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it was a really good conversation. Like, I mean, the parts that I liked. I, I, I was interested in when he did interpretation for Steve Jobs. That was cool. And George Lucas. Yeah, and he interpreted for Osamu Tezuka himself. Yeah, that guy that you talked about. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the Atom Boy, I believe. Yeah, the Atom Boy. Uh, Astro Boy. Ah, sorry, Astro Boy. And uh, sorry, he also Captain Adam. Captain Adam was, or not Captain Adam, as we learned in the interview. Mm-hmm. We also learned some things about Osamu Tezuka's famous beret, like why he wore it. Mm-hmm. And I learned that. I tried to figure out what was under it, and I kind of got an answer. Kind so, of. So yeah, I, I don't want to like say that we got the answer, and then you listen to it and you're really disappointed. But we kind of got an answer. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a wink of an answer, you mm-hmm. know, like a you know. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more, say no more kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Also, Fred is really great because he introduced the world to manga. So we got to hear about how mm-hmm. you get to read manga because of him. Yeah, it's all thanks to this guy that you're reading your Naruto and whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, because you get to read Scanlations is because of him, which he also talked about mm-hmm. his feelings Yeah, that was really interesting. Which yeah. is really cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, I, I, for some reason, asked him what he thought about the new Ghost in the Shell movie. Oh, then for some reason, it's because he translated Ghost in the Shell manga. Yeah, so he translated that the manga. That was a good answer. Yeah. yeah, he had a good answer about that, too. It might be surprising, and it will be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so we talked about all that and a lot more um, interpretation, translation, and, and uh, yeah, it's a good interview. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. Yep, on the Tofugu Podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tofugu Podcast. My name is Michael. Hey everyone, I'm Koichi. And today we have with us Fred Schott, a professional translator, professional interpreter, and author. Hi Fred. Hi Michael. Hi Koichi. It's a pleasure to be be on your show. Yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah, it's great to have you. We are really excited actually. For those of our listeners who don't know who you are, though I'm sure many do, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people have never heard of me, which is, uh, that's good. But I work as a translator and interpreter and a writer. And I've been involved with Japan for many, many years in a variety of ways. I've written books about Japanese manga, also robotics, uh, and relations with the United States and history. I've written quite a bit about the 19th century. I've translated manga. And, uh, I go to Japan maybe once or twice a year. So my involvement with Japan is is quite deep and quite long. What else? You tell me, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I like to ride bicycles. I have a motorcycle. I've never owned a car. Um, my wife would love me to get one, but I Wait, do have a driver's you've license. Never owned, you, you've never owned a car? I've never owned a car. Have you, re- have you uh, rented a car? Or at least a car? Oh, yes. I know how to drive. I have a license. Okay. I know how to drive. Yeah. Do you have a sidecar for your motorcycle? <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I drive a car, my wife always says I'm way too defensive because I, I slow down at every intersection. And, I, you know, I'm super defensive, especially in the Bay Area where no one is paying attention. <laughs> yeah. Right yeah. I, I lived down there for a while, and I, I know what you mean. And Portland is the exact opposite. Where It's actually like that, where just everyone stops and waits forever and doesn't do anything. and. It drives me crazy because I'm used to used to California driving. Yeah, actually, I just uh, heard from a friend in Portland, and he said he'd been visiting L.A. and he he was commenting on how <laughs> what good drivers they are in L.A. And he said <laughs> the problem in Portland is he says people slow down when they're going into a curve and slow down when they're coming yeah. out of a curve. They're supposed to be accelerating. And he had all these comments which were very interesting. I never thought of That's, before. Yeah. <laughs> they slow down at intersections and crosswalks and in the middle of the highway. And, and somehow yeah. we're the second most dangerous city for driving in the country. Like mm-hmm. We have the second most oh. accidents, apparently, per capita. Yeah. Really? Like behind, kills, they say. Uh, Boston, I believe. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So 
I'm glad we're talking yeah. about this when we have a, <laughs> yeah, have a professional translator, little interpreter, known, little known facts. historian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> facts are the spice of life. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I know. All, all week, Michael was really, really excited to talk to you. He's like a, a little giddy schoolboy. He's like, yeah. we're, gonna talk to, we're gonna talk to Frederick. We're gonna yeah. talk to Frederick. I had my little my calendar, my Advent calendar, <laughs> uh, eating chocolate each day until <laughs> we get to Fred Day. And there's a little Astro Boy inside each one. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because you, I've been reading Astro Boy since I think 2003, which was oh, the cool. year Astro Boy was created. And <laughs> it's true. April 7th. Yeah, right. April 7th. Oh. And, um, oh, I see. The, yeah, in, in the, the future, story. In yeah, the story. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I've been reading that. So I've been reading your, your translation since then. Um, and cool. one of the questions I had for you is about uh, how, how you got interested in manga because your your book manga manga which what year was manga manga published uh the hardback came out in 1983 and then the paperback came out in 1986 right so so i read the the paperback um in like 2008 um and the the introduction is by osamu tezuka and if i'm remembering correctly he says something really interesting like oh i hope manga can become uh, world famous or people can can know manga outside Japan and reading that in 2008 I was like oh wow even like at the end of Osamu Tezuka's life when manga was you know a pretty big deal Osamu Tezuka himself was like oh I sure hope someone reads manga some sometime outside <laughs> Japan um, which I thought was really interesting and uh, can, can you speak a little bit about that how, how you found manga before manga was known around the world yeah I, I think no one imagined that manga would become so popular um, in 1983, just to give an example, in 1983, when my book was published, I had a discussion with my editor, Peter Goodman, of Stone. Um, he, at that time, he was working for Kodansha International. And we had this discussion about what the title should be. And I think I had originally written in my manuscript, uh, Japanese Comics and New Visual Culture. And he was proposing that we use the word manga in the title and I was afraid that if we used manga that people would mistakenly think that it was an Italian word for eating (laughs) or that in libraries in those days libraries didn't have electronic databases Mm -hmm. they had card paper card catalogs and I was afraid it would be filed next to manganese (laughs) so I was actually against using manga in the title uh, and amazingly he won out but that just shows you how different things were. And people were not in the United States. They were not really, yeah. uh, most people were not really eating sushi. Um, everything was very, very different. So I think no one imagined that manga and anime would become quite as popular as they have. Even if you look back five years, it's it's come a long ways. Like five years ago, not as many, not so many people were, eat, were reading manga, except for like people who are really into that kind of that kind of culture and now it's like you see the manga section in bookstores there's websites that are dedicated to manga like subscription-based websites and also not so subscription-based websites that are very popular as well and uh (laughs) yeah it's it's just in the last five years i can't imagine back in 1983 or 82 before before you published your book using the word manga no, people were not were just not aware of the, of the word, and and people had a very different perception of Japan then as well. So things things have really changed. For me, one of the biggest changes is to see not only how manga have become accepted, but how flexible American readers are. Because in the beginning, uh, I believed, and I think most people believed, that in order to publish manga in translation in the United States, they had to look as much like American comics as possible. So mm-hmm. that all the artwork had to be flopped and redrawn. Uh, the onomatopoeia and sound effects had to be redrawn and had to be professionally lettered and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And sushi had to become hamburgers and things like that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, and you sometimes you had to have footnotes to explain Japanese cultural concepts. And uh, and now it's completely flopped. It's a hundred, no pun intended, but it's a hundred and eighty degree different because you you have readers who become upset if the work is flopped. Uh, they want to read from right to left rather than left to right, and and assume that that of course is much more authentic than a flopped manga. Of course, what they don't realize is that if you're reading in English from right to <laughs> left, you're actually reading a hybrid. It's not the way Japanese people read manga, but that's a whole other issue which we could spend hours talking about. Mm-hmm. 
And we shall. Let's begin. <laughs> I never imagined that the that, that American readers would be that flexible that they could read uh, basically what people in America would have thought of as backwards. You know, that, that's just amazing to me. What, uh, what made you decide to use the word manga twice in your title and with exclamation marks? Um, that was my editor. I think he, he he wanted to have something with a little smack. Exciting. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he wanted something that would catch people's eyes. And I think the designer in Odasha International, his name was Katakura-san. Mm-hmm. He designed the cover and he used that bright yellow because the original hardback was all bright, bright, bright yellow. And again, this was a, a publishing little trick, I guess, to catch people's attention because I guess there's some there was some statistical evidence at that point that you know a bright yellow cover would would attract more attention in bookstores than than other colors yeah. mm-hmm. so there's all kinds of things that went into it that you know are, are kind of interesting to think about now so what what was the first manga you read like when did when did you discover manga since obviously you you found out about it before most most other Americans yeah uh, well it's really interesting and a lot of people have asked me that um, I first went to Japan in 1965, and I was in an international school for the last two and a half years, three years of high school. But I, I didn't speak Japanese. Maybe because of that, I don't remember seeing manga in Japan. I think it was partly because I didn't read Japanese, but it was also because manga were not as ubiquitous as they are today. They weren't a mass medium quite the way they are now. And then I went back to Japan in 1970, and I that's when I began intensively studying Japanese at a university in Tokyo. And the people around me, my Japanese friends, were all reading manga and, and walking around with them. And it was kind of a, it was like a, a badge for them. It was a generational identifier, sort of like Americans at that time in the United States were listening to rock and roll. It was a generational identifier, and people were proud of the fact that they were reading these manga that older people thought were just for children, but they believed in, and, and they... They had discovered some manga, rather adult themes, and were very sophisticated that they loved. So they were very proud of this fact that they were manga fans. And then when I, you know, I saw more and more of my my friends reading manga, then I started picking them up. And in the beginning, I read stories that I could understand because obviously my language skills were limited. Uh, but I was a huge fan when I began reading manga of uh, some people who will never be translated, probably. And introduced in the United States, but Akatsuka Fujio, who's a, he was a gag artist who passed away a few years ago, but he had a series called Tensai Bakabon, Genius Idiot, and I just loved that series. And it had a lot of kind of American-style gags because Akatsuka was very influenced by Chaplin and American movies. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of humor that I could understand, even though there were a lot of puns that I didn't understand. <laughs> then I also started reading, actually, another Western-themed manga by Kawasaki Nobuyu, and it was called Koya Shonen Isamu. Uh, it's just like Isamu of the Plains, and it was sort of like the movie. I don't know if you have, maybe the listeners have seen it or heard of it called Red Sun with Toshiro Mifune, about a samurai who comes to the American West. And I, I could really understand that because I was familiar with the American West to a certain extent. So there were things that hooked me. And then later on, I, I started reading uh, Tezuka's Hinotori, Mm-hmm. or Phoenix, and, and then I became a total fan of that, and I became a big Tezuka fan. And that, that to me, was a real eye-opener, because I, I, I had no idea that comics could be used to address such serious ideas and themes, And because I was only about 20 years old. Uh, there were a lot of themes in Phoenix that really resonated with me, because I was trying to figure out you know, the world I was living in and trying to figure out how, how I fit in there. Yeah, wow. So you went you went from fan to colleague then, basically, with Tezuka-san. Well, I, I didn't meet Tezuka in 1970 when I started reading manga. I didn't meet him until about seven years later. Mm-hmm. I was living in Japan, and I, I'd spent a few years in studying in Japan in a university, and I was working as a professional translator in Tokyo. And some friends and I put together a group called Dadakai mm-hmm. to translate Japanese manga. And it was one... Uh, two, one American friend named Jared Cook and two Japanese friends, uh, Sakamoto Shinichi and then Ueda Midori. And we we decided we wanted to translate it manga and make them better known around the world. So we approached people like Tezuka and also Matsumoto Reiji. Mm-hmm. And we asked if we could translate their works. And that's how I wound up meeting uh, Tezuka. Oh, so you, got, you guys just approached him and 
He agreed to meet with you guys? Yeah. Well, we were, you know, we were stupid, basically. And thankfully, we were stupid. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we, we just thought, great. what should we start with? And and I was a big fan of, of Tezuka. And everybody else, I think, was a big fan of Tezuka, too. So we thought, well, let's try and uh, and approach him. And somehow, uh, Sakamoto-san was able to contact Tezuka Productions. Mm -hmm. And then we had a meeting. We weren't expecting to meet Tezuka. But he just sort of materialized while we were talking with his manager talking with him about what we wanted to do and that's how i met him he was very nice and he was very interested in why we would be interested in manga and we wound up translating the first five volumes of phoenix and we gave them to tezuka productions and then they sat in a um, basically an archive or a safe in 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 tezuka <laughs> productions for 25 years until they were published wow <laughs> well you, you got delay. to you got to <laughs> that was your very first manga translation was was phoenix that's right. Yeah, yeah. And well, we also at the same time we also worked on Matsumoto Reiji's Senjo series or the Battlefield series, uh, which was unfortunately never published outside of a little excerpt in in manga manga. So, but yeah, basically Phoenix was was what we we cut our teeth on. I'm I'm really interested in uh, how. So you said uh, Sakamoto-san was it? That was your. Mm -hmm. So how do you know how he uh, contacted? The studio, or like, what, what did what did you, you know, guys I'm say? I'm not sure. Like, this, this is a very long time ago, yeah. and he may, there may have been some connection through his older brother. I'm not. Okay. I don't remember exactly, but that contact was very useful for us because it led us to the production company, yeah. and then I can't imagine what he said. We were able to meet Tezuka because in in those days Tezuka was even then in Japan he was known as the manga no kamisama or the god of of manga. So he he was on another dimension than we were we were just you know <laughs> we were very young that's an important lesson it doesn't hurt to ask right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah can, can you tell so us aim, a... aim high you know aim high that's, right that's... yeah just don't yeah don't don't think about boundaries and don't think about what everyone else does and just i guess compete yeah. on a different level so you don't have to compete at all because i don't think anyone would just do that or not too many people well there were other at the time there were actually other people who were um, translating uh, one Japanese comic you've probably heard of, uh, Barefoot Gen, mm -hmm. Hadashi no Gen, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. by Keiji Nakazawa about the bombing of Hiroshima. And that was a group of volunteers. Uh, and that was going on separately right around the same time we were working on the Phoenix. And then myself and Jared Cook, who was also a member of Dadakai, which was the name of our group, uh, we later translated one volume of uh, Barefoot Gen. Um, Barefoot again was a volunteer system, and there were many people who worked on the translation, so it was kind of a different scheme. So, was it, so there was like basically rival manga translation gangs roaming around Japan. Uh, well, yeah, not, not rivals. We were all friends That's actually, good. and 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 even you know even around that time, there was a Japanese man in Switzerland mm -hmm. who was putting out a manga, uh, a magazine in French of. Translated Japanese manga. So yeah. even if you think you know you're one of the first people in the world, if you drill down to this stuff, there's always somebody before you, mm -hmm. <laughs> or somebody doing the same thing at the same time. That's just the way the world works. A lot, a lot of this sounds like how a lot of this is going on now, where there's a lot of manga that's not being translated, and then on the internet, there's groups of people who are just, I guess, volunteering, quote unquote, even though they're not supposed to be, uh, volunteering to translate the manga and, and publish it so that people can read it when otherwise they wouldn't be able to. But sometimes there are ways to buy it, but a lot of times it's, you know, a little bit more obscure or... Yeah, and, and of course that's a very controversial area in mm -hmm. the whole scanlation business where you have groups of fans who get together and translate their favorite works yeah. and, and, you know, upload them to the, on the web. I mean, it's good on, on one level in that it really has helped drive the popularity totally. of translated, but it's bad on the level that it, it will make it very difficult in the future for uh, artists in Japan to create manga yeah. for the overseas market. So it's a double-edged sword, as you know. Yeah. How do you, how do you feel about that? Uh, well, I have mixed feelings about it, as I think you can tell. On one level, I know that the scanlation movement has helped popularize manga. On another level, you know, it's not authorized. It's not legal. The artists don't get any profit from it. And uh, there are many problematic aspects to it. But actually, that goes beyond the scanlation movement because, for example, all the books I've written are available in PDF on the web through, mm -hmm. you can get them from China or Russia, all printed matter <laughs> yeah. now. Mm -hmm. 
heavily copied and uh, pirated and it's a problem with music it's a problem with manga it's a problem with books and it's a problem nobody's really figured out how to solve i feel like and i'm hoping that that's all that is sort of turning a corner it feels like more and more people are willing to to pay for things online and want to pay for things online as long as it's easy it needs to be easy yeah, yeah that's the main thing um, but i think one bad aspect of it, it is it has brought down the standard a little bit i'd say mm. i think the quality of manga publication and maybe even of translation to a certain extent has uh, has been lowered because there's a, a good enough approach. People have become very used to sort of a good enough approach to many things, not just manga, but many things. So that's true. Yeah, that's resulted. That's resulted in a kind of a compromise on on the business level and what kind of level of quality people, publishers at least will aim for. It's, it's interesting because if someone did that to like a novel or they did that to subtitles for a movie, usually people just like oh, it's so low quality. This is terrible. But like for some reason. For some reason, uh, I don't know. I don't know why that standard isn't there. Because a good translation, it makes a big difference in, in manga and like basically all mediums. But yeah, I, I, now I see what you mean. I think I think you're right. Well, I think one one reason is that the bulk of the readership for manga and anime are still y mm -hmm. young people who don't have a lot of disposable income. Right. So you know they're willing to put up with a lower quality if they can read what they want to read. Let's put it that mm -hmm. way. So people become conditioned to sort of a, a good enough approach. But again, it's not just manga and anime. It's it's something true of maybe just about everything in our culture today. <laughs> I hate to say it. Yeah, I wonder if um, there's also an element of, you know, people wanting it, like, right away. I know that, like, they've gotten to the point with anime subtitles, like Crunchyroll and things like that. They say, like, we've got it the day after it airs in Japan. Um, and then with manga, I, I mean, I'm not super in the know of how manga translations work maybe there's people that translate it the day after it comes out in japan um on the internet but yeah, i don't know there's like, like crunchyroll has that and um there's some other services that do that but i think it's one week after if i'm not mistaken and then these scantillation folks are doing it in like one or two days okay so yeah there's the and there's also the the aspect of manga where you know there's a lot of it so you kind of just right. want to get the story, eat it up, and move on to the next one. Right. I think there's, you know, there have been a lot of attempts to issue the translated version almost in real time with the Japanese version. Mm -hmm. And that's possible for maybe some larger publishers uh, that have a, a lot of wherewithal and room to do that kind of thing. But normally for publishing manga, of course, there's a huge time lag because it takes a long time to translate something and it costs a lot of money. And of course, paper publication versus electronic publication, you know, there's all kinds of issues. So paper publication is a very expensive business. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to truck the things all over the place and, you know, you have to pay the translator and the letter, you have to pay the touch-up artists, you know, there's all kinds of it's a, it's a very difficult business, and I don't I don't mean to denigrate what people in the scanlation community have been doing because I know for a fact that there are also a lot of publishers who probably wouldn't have decided to translate and publish some works if they hadn't already established in the beginning that there's a market for a particular work because of the the reaction to scanlation. I mean, it's sort of like a free market research. You can <laughs> you can see. How many times some scanlated work has been downloaded? You can tell how popular it is, and then you can go back if your publisher invests money in a paper translation. And, uh, so that you know, there's both good and bad to it. Yeah, we were talking to uh, Zach Davison a couple weeks ago, who translates Gegege no Kitaro, and he was saying that he has a lot of trouble trying to get publishers to want to to print anything or, or translate anything after 2013. Like, if he's like, oh, I've got this cool manga from the 60s, they're like, no, we'll pass. So I, I wonder if things like scanlations uh, for older manga will hopefully get more things like that translated officially. Yeah, that's possible. Um, it's interesting you say that because I think actually um, Zach has been doing some, some manga from the <laughs> 70s as well. So mm -hmm. somehow he's managed to interest publishers. But it's true. Uh, and, and for... For younger audiences, I mean, why should they be interested in, in works created in the 60s and 70s? I mean, can you imagine? That's like you know, listening to ancient music or, you know, it would be like your parents' generation <laughs> stuff. Mm -hmm. I, think it, I think it's natural for young fans, at least to, to 
want to obtain the latest material. And of course, that's really true of anime because people, and the link between anime and manga, because people see something on TV and then they want the manga and they want it. You know, they want the, the most popular works. Yeah. So they're, they're not so they're not so interested in finding some obscure niche material, even though it may be great. Yeah, I think that as I've gotten older, and maybe it's just me. I don't know if this is other other people as well, but I've become less interested in like whatever's current. And I'm like, oh yeah, I want this manga. I want this comic from the '40s, like Pogo by Walt Kelly or yeah, something I think you like just that. Moved to Portland and became a hipster. Yeah. Michael. But yeah. whenever, I, well, whenever I go to the comic book shop, I look for the big like hardbacks of you know <laughs> dailies from the 30s or something yeah. like that. Uh, well, Pogo's great. That's all I can say. Yeah, Pogo is very good. <laughs> I, I, I I really think that that's a function of age, and of course, I don't know. You know, we're talking here. Maybe you're 15, or maybe you're 95. I have no idea. I'm 15. For but everyone I think, listening, and I'm 95. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a motley uh, crew. You know, being interest, becoming interested in works from the 60s and 70s or 40s and 50s, that's really a function of age to an extent because I think what happens is people, maybe they start out with something quite current that they really like, whether it's anime, manga, or comics, or, or even a novel. And then they become interested in knowing who influenced the author that they're a fan of and then they start tracing it back and then you keep going back and back you may go back generations if you're if you're really interested in a particular artist or novelist or or a film author there's a i think you reach a point after a certain number of years that you want to know what influenced the person you're a fan of so i think there's definitely an age factor involved yeah and speaking of tracing back um I read uh, when I was first getting into like manga and things like that. And I was like, oh, this anime is interesting. Manga is interesting. And I started to, to look back like, well, what influenced that? I read um, uh, Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. And, and in, in there he was like, oh, basically all manga goes back to one person, goes back to Osamu Tezuka. Uh, so could, could, you, could you speak a bit to um, like uh, when, you, when you first met him and uh, – how how you could see the influence uh, back in the seventies when you met him? How could could you see that influence sort of uh, starting to to blossom? Uh, well, as far as Scott McCloud is concerned, I know he's a big Tezuka fan. Actually, if you look at his um, very early comics, Zot, mm -hmm. um, very influenced by uh, Tezuka. Um, when I first met Tezuka, of course, I as I mentioned, I was you know I was fairly young. Uh, I was I guess I was twenty seven. But I thought he was quite extraordinary because he, as I think a lot of the listeners know, he was uh, not only a manga artist, but he was quite an intellectual. He was a licensed physician, uh, and he was very versed and well-read in German literature, Japanese literature, American films, American animation, European films, Russian literature. Uh, he, he was a, kind of an anomaly in the manga world. At that time in Japan, it was very rare for people who were very educated, uh, formally educated at least, to become manga artists because it was such a precarious lifestyle. So he was quite an exception. And he was very, um, he was very generous to me. He was always very, very kind. I know with his employees and sometimes even with his family, he would sometimes have fits but to me and to his fans he was also very very generous and i must say i you know i i enjoyed talking with him a great deal i was very fortunate in the fact that because i worked with him as his interpreter many times when he would come to the united states and canada i would travel with him and then Sometimes I would sit next to him and have, have long discussions with him about all kinds of things, about religion, about nuclear power, ecology, just all kinds of things that I was interested in and that he was interested in. And he was like a sponge. Uh, he was always craving information because he was creating multiple stories at the same time, simultaneously, for multiple magazines. He's just this almost superhuman productivity. So he needed ideas constantly. So when he began talking with people, he was always absorbing information from them. And that's something that uh, I've never forgotten. What kinds of, uh, of conversations did you have? I know you mentioned ecology and, and things like that. Um, like what, what, what kinds of, of topics did you guys talk about? 
You know, I can remember talking with him about Murphy's Law in San Francisco <laughs> once, and then in an article that he wrote in Cinema uh, <laughs> Junpo, which was a, a film magazine in Japan at the time, uh, he actually wrote about it. I don't know if he mentioned my name or not, but I was just astounded that, you know, I would mention that what, what to Japanese people at that point in history was just totally useless idea, <laughs> this whole thing of Murphy's Law, and somehow it caught his attention. So I remember talking about that. I remember talking about, um, you know, the differences between nuclear fission and nuclear fusion because we were talking about Astro Boy, which you, you may know in the original story, uh, Atom or Astro has an atomic engine. He, so he actually uses atomic energy to fly and do all the things he does. And by the time I met Tezuka, of course, atomic energy and nuclear power was a fairly controversial subject, not only in the United States, but also uh, in Japan um, after Three Mile Island. And uh, Tezuka was, in 1980, for example, he created an, a new um, animated series for Astro Boy, the 1980 color uh, Astro Boy version, mm. or Tetsuo And I, I actually worked as a kind of a informal consultant in the very beginning on that and Tezuka was very interested in you know how how I should tweak this character that he had originally created in 1951-52 for a more modern audience and so he was interested in doing things like changing the power source <laughs> from uh, atomic fission to nuclear fusion uh, or a non-polluting you know a safer <laughs> safer power source make, okay, make so Astro Boy more echo <laughs> yeah, 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 more ecology oriented. And, and we had all kinds of conversations. We had conversations about my own background, my family history. He just wanted to know everything. You know, he, that's, that's the person he was. And he, he had to have information, new information all the time to keep going. What's, uh, what's one story about you and, and or him that you've never told anybody else? Well, so many people have asked me uh, about him that I think I've pretty much met. <laughs> or written just about everything um, that I remember. But I can say that I'm probably one of the few Americans who saw him without his beret. That's one thing. And the mm. other thing is that... So what's what's under there? Uh, well, I'll, I'll leave that to your imagination. It was okay. Oh. It was all right. But the other the other thing, which is quite, a, quite amusing, and I actually wrote about it in one of my books, but I was at an airport in San, Francisco, in San Francisco. I was at the airport, and he had flown in from Japan, and he was going to a film... A festival in Canada, and his plane came in, and then we we were, I was going to go with him to Canada, so we were waiting in the in the uh, boarding area in the airport in San Francisco, and I began talking with him, and we were supposed to get on this plane to go to Canada, and we were right in front of the boarding gate, and. It's just amazing to me to think of this, but I was talking with him and I became so engrossed in the conversation that uh, we, I didn't hear the announcement. Uh, they announced that the plane, I guess, had arrived and everybody in the, in the boarding area, they boarded the plane and the plane took off. Uh, and I only realized this afterwards. <laughs> and uh, what's really amazing is that he, he, didn't, he didn't get angry at me because I was in charge to an extent um, I, I was a little bit more than his interpreter. I was kind of like the, the coordinator for the trip. Mm -hmm. So I had some responsibility for getting him on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> so that gives you an idea of, of what kind of, you know, how the conversations could get rather deep. I was completely oblivious to the fact that <laughs> the plane had come, gone, people had gone on and, and, and left. Why, why did he, why did he wear a beret? Is there any reason? Uh, Is that like well, that's his, a good, his Steve that, Jobs that's a good, turtleneck or? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and in a book that I just translated recently, which is a biography of Tezuka mm -hmm. by Toshi Obang and Tezuka Productions, uh, they talk a little bit about the fact that when Tezuka was young, a beret was something that was associated with an artist. Mm -hmm. And that was mainly because <laughs> of influence from France. Mm -hmm. And there was a period after the war in Japan when Many artists felt they need to identify themselves, so they wore berets. It's just, it was a statement, I am an artist. 
And for Tezuka, that I think is how he began wearing the beret. And then it became a brand. Mm -hmm. And also after he began losing some of his hair, it became, uh, you know, a a more appealing part of his brand. (laughs) But the other the other elements of the brand were his glasses, which were these fairly thick rimmed glasses. Mm -hmm. And then his nose had these little dots on it. And if you look at almost all of the self-portraits that Tezuka drew, they show this brand, the beret, the glasses, and then the dots on the nose. And that became something that he he promoted, he wanted, and it was something that uh, uh, people identified with him. So even today in Japan, if, if you ask some fan of Tezuka to draw a picture of him, they'll always draw him with a beret, and with glasses, the thick rimmed glasses and little dots on his nose. <laughs> I'm kind of curious um, because you, you talked earlier about how uh, even when you knew him, he was known as the god of manga. Uh, like during his lifetime, do, do you know like how that term started and, and how he felt about being called the god of manga? I don't think he minded at all. <laughs> <laughs> also good for your uh, brand when people start calling you a god. Yeah. yeah. It's good for your brand, and also it's like I hear I people talking about you as the the god of translate manga translation. So mm-hmm. no, no, no. <laughs> but I I I, uh, I think Tezuka took a little a bit of joy in it because also when he began when he began creating manga, the social status of manga artists in Japan was very very low. Mm-hmm. So you know, for him to have given up a career in medicine because he was a licensed physician. Uh, at that time, in 1947, 48, uh, he, he was trying to balance, you know, should he become a doctor, should he become a manga artist, and, and he eventually chose the manga artist. That was a very, very radical thing to yeah. do in the, mm-hmm. in the days, for somebody to give up a career in medicine. To, like in any days, risk. that's a big, yeah. big decision, even now. That's a big decision. Yeah, even now, that would be a really, really courageous decision. Yeah. She's like, hey, mom and dad, I'm not going to be a doctor like <laughs> you I You know planned. all that money we spent on, on medical school? That's right. You know that, that's the right. 12 exactly. years I was that's in right. school for? Well, that's right. I discovered, and you can you can imagine you can imagine his parents are thinking, well, how's he going to support himself? How's he going to ever have a family? You know, what's going to happen to our descendants? Mm -hmm. You know, our our whole family tree is going to evaporate right here. So, yeah, uh, it it was a a, a very courageous thing, and I think when he helped create, he helped make manga more popular and become much more of a mainstream media and sort of elevate the whole medium expression to one that is much more recognized. I think he took a lot of joy in it. And, uh, you know, Tezuka in his own way was a bit of an egotist. He loved um, attention. He liked being uh, flattered. Uh, you know, he was a, a normal human. And I, so I, I think he didn't, he didn't protest when people said, manga no kamisama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, when, whenever you, you mentioned uh, about, like, manga status while Tezuka was, uh, was I guess, like, up and coming, or I guess he was always kind of up and coming, but uh, I remember one of the first times I went to Japan, and one of the things I'd heard was like, oh, everyone in Japan loves manga, everyone reads manga, it, that's just how it is. And I was talking to an older guy who I guess might have been not a young person in the 70s, since you were saying the 70s was when manga was like a cultural revolution thing and i told him like oh i really like astro boy i i like manga and he was like manga that's for children i don't read that kind of childish stuff and i was like <laughs> oh well i guess not everyone likes manga and i never understood that till now i just thought like oh that guy just doesn't like manga but maybe that, that was the generation thing that you were you were talking about well there was a big shift for sure on the end of the 60s and early 70s and then in the 80s you really saw manga become this huge mainstream phenomenon and at one point um you know you're probably aware in like 1996 that was the peak of the of the manga boom in japan nearly 40 percent of all books and magazines in japan were in manga format um maybe in the united states it's very hard to get statistics in the united states but certainly that number would have been under 5%. So mm-hmm. it's it's unparalleled. There's no other country in the world where manga have or comics, the comics medium have become so popular. But having said that, of course, uh, sales of manga have dropped a lot in Japan. And nowadays, it's interesting to note that the, there are very few people on trains anymore you see reading them. That's a big change just in the last 15 years. 
Hmm. So manga are, they, they have a different position in Japanese society than they might have had 15 or 20 years ago. Are those are those numbers counting digital sales as well, or is that just a physical book? You know, I can just tell you from a very uh, sort of subjective perspective that, you know, I was looking, I was in Japan in February, and I saw very few people reading manga, paper manga, and I saw very few people actually reading digital manga on their phones mm-hmm. or, or on their iPads. I saw a lot of people playing games. Mm-hmm. I, I saw very few people actually reading manga. So you can make the argument, which uh, I have sort of tentatively put out, that manga may be like ukiyo-e, mm-hmm. like woodblock prints. Um, they may be very much a 20th century phenomenon. But that doesn't mean, of course, that they're going to disappear. That just means that probably the volume of manga is it is contracting dramatically. Mm-hmm. But they, they won't disappear as a, as, a, as a unique cultural aspect of Japan. They'll still be... The, the, the manga business in Japan is still vastly bigger than that of the comics industry in the United States and, and, and the comics industry in any other country, as far as I'm, I can tell. Uh, and, and, but, but as a form of entertainment, it, it's morphing. You know, it's going digital, maybe fusing with games and maybe fusing with animation. Uh, who knows where it's going to go? Yeah, I, guess, I guess in a sense, games are also storytelling sometimes, but also sometimes definitely not. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just ma- right. match the matching jewels and, and call right. it a day. But sometimes you <laughs> twist yeah. the jewels, which Ooh. is different. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sometimes you buy bags of jewels. Yeah. Yeah. You buy DLC in, in micro. <laughs> yeah. 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 But well, I wonder if we'll see that evolve. Because I, I mean, I think manga and, and comics too, they started off very like simple and like looking back at at really, really, really early comics or manga, you know, you can see that simplicity and you can see it evolve and becoming more and more complex and, and a, a better story medium, at least when someone comes along who can, who can do that. So maybe we'll see that with phone games too, but mm. not anytime soon, I don't think. <laughs> well, yeah, well, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, you can speculate in a lot of ways that comics and manga might evolve going forward mm-hmm. because... Mm. Once they become digital, there's nothing to stop artists from making things move in one form or another. Yeah. So you, you you might see the border between static comics and manga and, say, animation. And I think I've seen that already a little bit. Mm-hmm. Or pen and scan start yeah. to blur. Mm-hmm. So, you know, nobody knows exactly where, where these things are going, but... Uh, we're in a, we're in a, you know a new new century and it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. yeah. Next is brain manga. <laughs> Just like That's right. Printed straight That's onto right. your brain. Mm-hmm. That's right. Or like Facebook's technology where it lets you what is it? Is it see with with like something touching your skin? I haven't heard of oh. that. What what, what oh, does I it do? Know. Is I, it I skin? Have, I don't know. Just like movement. It could be something else. I'm not sure. Anyways, okay. off topic. It sounds cool <laughs> though. Sounds futuristic. Uh, I wanted to ask real quick, since we're on the subject of Osamu Tezuka, I'm holding uh, the book, your newest translated book, the o- Osamu Tezuka story, no, he is. <laughs> in my hands. Um, and it is very big. It's huge. I'm going to look at the page numbers right now. Uh, well, you know, it's 914 pages. Oh, no, that's not, not so I think big. I think it's 940, isn't it? Is it 914? Did you say 914? Uh, 14 is the is the end uh, with the about the authors and credits and everything. Um, maybe I got an edition that's missing. Yeah, you're you must be missing all the supplemental material because the books are I'm missing. <laughs> more than I pay for the DLC for this book. Yeah, um, it's missing the part where huge. where it's he huge. actually wrote the idea for One Piece and yeah, where he created One Piece <laughs> and Shonen Jump demanded they take it out. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but so I was wondering, how long did it take you to translate this book yeah. of 900 plus pages? Uh, I don't remember exactly, but I probably spent a year actually working on it. Um, but of course, at the same time, I'm also you know doing other things, trying to make a living and 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 other things as well. But it was a, a it was a lot of fun to do. But I must say, the supplementary material in the back is what nearly killed me, and I, I still haven't recovered from that. <laughs> Um, I don't know the maybe the volume you have. Somebody must have cut off like twenty five pages or something. But mm-hmm. in the official version, there's I think nearly forty pages of a list of everything that Tessica ever created. 
uh, wow. manga, un- animation, uh, posters, calendars, you name it. Hmm. And it's all in microprint. And it's not manga. It's um, it's like a bibliography. Hmm. And it's it was incredibly difficult to do because when you translating titles of a work there's nothing more difficult really than translating a title of a work Mm. from Japanese into English or vice versa because you have to double check has it already been translated was it translated correctly (laughs) and often titles do not directly represent the story do you want in in the translation do you want to represent the story the idea of the work or do you want to just literally translate the title there's so many decisions that have to be made and so much checking that has to go in to each element of the title that it it practically killed me. How do you go about uh, making those decisions? Well, it wasn't easy. Uh, I had to do a lot of research. So I I have you know tons of books on Tezuka's works. I I also had access. There's some wonderful websites where people in Japan have tried to compile you know titles that have already been translated, or they they give explanations of minor works. Uh, there's also TezukaInEnglish.com, which is <laughs> people have done some wonderful work in trying to compile translations in and the original titles but one of the issues of course is that you know often the the translations that were done long ago are wrong for example in japan the first one of the first episodes of astro boy or tetsuha atom was mistranslated that they had in the japanese manga it was captain atom because it's atom taishi was the name of one of the first episodes but in in reality the word taishi has two meanings actually has many many meanings if you don't look at the kanji Mm -hmm. or the chinese characters because it can mean captain or if it's a different chinese character it can mean ambassador Uh, I mean, all kinds of things. And the editor in 1951 or 52 obviously didn't know a lot of English and probably looked up, you know, Taishi, Taishi, you know, looked up in English and says, Captain, <laughs> but it's not Captain in Japanese. The characters are really for ambassadors. So there's a lot of things like this that take a lot of time to check and, and, and double check. And uh, that was the most difficult part of the translation. I will say Cap- Captain does sound cooler. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Although I do want to see like an Elseworld or something where uh, Astro Boy is appointed as an ambassador to another country <laughs> yeah. and has to hold yeah. dinners for dignitaries yeah. and things like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But I, I loved working. I loved working on the body of the biography, and I think that um, um, Ban Tosio did a wonderful job. He he was under a lot of pressure because he originally created the story just a few years after Tezuka died. He went, he didn't have a lot of time to do the research, but. You know, Tezuka was so prolific and almost superhumanly productive that to just try and represent his life in one book is very difficult. Mm-hmm. That's why, um, you know, a lot of people had asked me, why don't I write an English biography of Tezuka? And I, I resisted doing this for many, many years because I just thought it was just an overwhelming idea. And it, I, I eventually wound up writing a book called The Astro Boy Essays um, Tezuka Osamu and the manga anime re- revolution. And I, I focused on one character on, on Astro Boy because um, that was one way I felt I could introduce people to his whole, whole life and to, and, and to his philosophy and, and so forth and so on. Because otherwise you have to talk about film, you have to talk about adult manga, you have to talk about girls manga, you have to talk about boys manga. Mm-hmm. You have to talk about everything. And it, it would just be overwhelming. Could, could you uh, speak a little bit to uh, Toshioban, uh, who wrote the Osamu Tezuka story? You said he, he wrote it a little bit after Tezuka's death? Yeah. Uh, it was published in 1992. Okay. And uh, it was originally serialized in a magazine in Japan, which is now, I believe, out of business. Um, but Ban had worked as Tezuka's sub-chief assistant, and that's Japanese. Sabu chief assistant. So uh, he had he was and had many assistants and, and he had his chief assistant. He had a whole system. It was a production system. It's one of the reasons he could be so so productive. So Bond had actually worked for Tezuka, and as a result, he not only knew Tezuka personally, but he could draw in Tezuka's style. Uh, and after Tezuka passed away, the manga department of Tezuka Productions was disbanded. But before it was disbanded, um, they had decided to cr- create this uh, biography. And 
Bon was selected because not only did he know Tezuka, but because he could draw in Tezuka's style. And as a result, the Osamu Tezuka is officially created by both Aban Koshiro Toshiobang and Tezuka Productions because he had access to all their archives and he had access to you know interviews with people who knew Tezuka. And he had to do a huge amount of work. And he, frankly, a book like that, you, you, you probably couldn't create it without access to the archives in Tezuka Productions and, and without access to people to interview. It just wouldn't be possible. So I think he did a fabulous job because it's uh, it's not only a, a history of Tezuka, but it's really a history of the manga industry in Japan and even the beginning of the anime industry in a larger sense, sort of like Mizuki uh, Shigeru's Showa series, which Zach Davison translated. It's kind of uh, a history of post-war Japan as well, of, of the Showa period. So it's it's very useful for people who want more information, not only on Tezuka, but on the manga industry, mm-hmm. and also on post-war Showa period uh, Japan. That's a lot to pack into one book. Yeah. yeah, and when translating it, of course, what was amazing to me was I came across one page where I actually appear in, I think, two two different oh, panels. Really? <laughs> okay, we're going to try and look that up Do you, do you know what quick. page that's on? Can we find it? I, I just <laughs> opened a random page. It actually might. It actually might be. Let me. Uh, <laughs> Tezu, Tezuka's but talking Bob, to someone, and they look like they're not Japanese. Looks like, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm reading very slowly. Find it. It, it's hard to find, but it's a. Uh, it's when Tele and Tezuka visited LA, and he went to visit Ward Kimball, who was one of the grand old animators mm-hmm. for Walt Disney, who worked on. Uh, like Alice in Wonderland, and he's he's part of the pantheon of early animator deities in the in the Disney organization. And Tezuka was a huge fan of Ward Kimball, so I went with him to visit Ward Kimball. And I wasn't alone with Tezuka. There were also people from Tezuka's entourage, such as uh, Shinichi Suzuki, who's a, a well-known animator in Japan himself. Mm-hmm. And he took a bunch of photos. And Bon uh, obviously had access to these photos that Suzuki had taken. So when when Toshio Bon was drawing the Osamu Tezuka story, he was able to use that photo. Nice. So what you see in the book, where I'm standing next, between actually between uh, Ward Kimball and Tezuka, and I'm wearing this very silly looking vest, and I have this very kind of uh, early '80s hairstyle. That's based <laughs> on an actual photograph taken by uh, Suzuki Shinch. Yeah, you got to stand. <laughs> Just a little a little trivia. I think I can't actually tell. I'm I'm trying to read as you're talking, but I, I did open directly to a part of the book where he's in the LA airport and talking about I want to go to LA. Yeah. If you look in I think if you look in the introduction that I wrote, you can probably see um, that panel. It's, it's <laughs> okay. interesting. It's very difficult to find otherwise, and I, I, I wouldn't want you to, to, to waste right, time on right. it. Okay. But it's just a little it's just a little bit of a minor trivia for readers. Oh, there it is in the in the intro. Okay, I was not on the right page, but yes, you are wearing a cool vest. Very old fashioned, yes. And very very cool everything else. Just very cool person overall drawing. That's cool. You're in the book. I actually was gonna <laughs> ask that when yeah, we started. <laughs> I was gonna be like, Are you in the book? I was like, Wow, no. I'm in the book. Wow. I'm also in the acknowledgments to my surprise. Yeah, I've I I've only looked through a little bit of it and I think Michael's looked through a lot more than I have. But mm-hmm. just like the little bit I've gone through, it's definitely it's it's a it's a much more engaging way, I think, at least for me, to uh <laughs> to go to learn about the life of Tezuka and and it's, I don't know, it's, it's a lot more fun. It's a lot easier to, to consume, I think. Yeah, it is It is a lot of fun. Yeah, I think for most American readers, it's probably a little different than uh, different from what they're used to mm-hmm. because it's not a standard manga. In Japan, a book like that would fall into the category of what are called joho manga mm-hmm. or information manga. Yeah. Uh, they're manga that are designed specifically to impart information. They're... they're Slightly entertaining, but they're heavily educational as well. I have a I have a Joho so, manga about APA hotel so, in Japan. Oh, <laughs> Strangely, so so there's much the information density uh, is much higher than you find in say something like Naruto or something mm-hmm. like that. Unless you get the Naruto Joho manga, <laughs> yeah, I think, right I think everything has a little bit more information right, than right. than Naruto does. Uh-huh. Great. <laughs> 
This it's very cool. It really yeah. It, so from what your description is, it sounds like this is the like definitive biography of Osamu Tezuka. Like there, I mean, is is written by his his sub chief assistant who knew him. He had access to all the ar- archives. It was made mm-hmm. by him in the, you know, in Tezuka pr- Productions. So translated by his translator and interpreter. Yeah, who met him many times. Like mm-hmm. it's it's kind of like the ultimate in in the correct medium too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there are tons of books, of course, uh, on Tezuka in Japan. And there are other books on him in English. Uh, for example, I, as I mentioned, I wrote the book, the Astro Boy Essays, mm-hmm. but also um, um, uh, Natsu Ono the Power wrote a wonderful book on Tezuka in English. And Helen McCarthy also did a wonderful book, uh, a visual a visual book on, on Tezuka. So there oh, are yeah, other I have books. That book. but, we talked to her a yeah, little a few weeks good. ago. Yeah, 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 they're all wonderful. <laughs> and, and, it's a small but world. I think that, uh-huh. I think that the um, one of the hallmarks of the Osamu Tezuka story is that it really is this very close view of him by people who knew him, and and uh, that's reflected in the fact that not only Ban knew Tezuka per- personally, but that there's a lot of input from people who knew Tezuka very closely, such as his manager uh, Matsutani Takayuki and and some of the older veteran employees at uh, Tezuka Productions and people he worked with and people who remember him and his family as well. So going back to your uh, interpreting, I know that we've covered a lot of things, but um, I think this might be my last question, unless anyone else has other questions. I have one more question. Okay, I have one last question. Koichi has one more question. Um, But I'm I'm interested to hear about uh, your experience interpreting because interpreting is, is much different from translating. So you did some translating first, and then you got into interpreting. Like, how, how was that jump going from translator to interpreter? Uh, in my case, it's a little complicated because I studied both translation and interpreting in the university in Japan. Well, at the same time? Yeah, but I wasn't, I didn't feel that I was good enough to work as a professional interpreter. And I began working as a professional translator in Tokyo at a company called Simo which is actually known mainly as an interpreting company, but I worked in the translation department and I translated speeches and all kinds of things. But my original goal was to do interpreting at some point in addition to translation. Most people specialize in one or the other. In my case, I did a lot of translation in my early years. And then after I came back to the United States, I I started doing more translation. In the beginning, it was mainly consecutive. I should say interpreting. In the beginning, it was mainly consecutive interpreting. And then in the end of the 90s, I started doing more and more um, simul interpreting, which was something actually that I, I I had received some training in, but I didn't. I hadn't felt that I was good enough to do that in the beginning. So it's been kind of a gradual evolution. But I've done just about every kind of translation and just about every kind of interpreting you can imagine. I used to work on film crews uh, as an interpreter. I've flown in helicopters. I've been in deserts. Uh, you know, I've done boring interpreting. I've done exciting interpreting. I've met lots of famous people. Now, most of my interpreting is actually IT related, and almost all of it is simul. Uh, yesterday I did some consecutive, but most of it is simul, and I usually work with a colleague. And that's how I have made the bulk of my living. Uh, some people think I just sit around and read manga all day long, but <laughs> that's not true. Yeah, <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. So, uh, but it, it's true that very few people do both. There, uh, I have a couple friends who do both, but usually people specialize in either translation or interpreting. And there's usually a very different personality type that's required mm-hmm. to one or the other. Yeah, you mentioned uh, very exciting and very boring yeah. interpreting. <laughs> so what what's the most exciting interpreting and then the most boring interpreting <laughs> you've ever done? The boring one would be for Elon Musk and his boring company, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I've never worked for, um, for Tesla. I wouldn't mind doing that. But I've worked for a lot of IT companies in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in terms of exciting, some of the most exciting stuff, I think, for me was actually uh, when I used to work as an interpreter and also a coordinator with film productions and people making commercials in the United States from Japan. 
um, that's when you get into all kinds of weird situations. And But it's something that is pretty hard to do very long, although I have a good friend who made a very good career out of it. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, you know, I've done... I've met some very wonderful people and I've uh, met some very famous people. I've actually interpreted, believe it or not, for Stephen Jobs mm. once uh, directly. George Lucas, uh, uh, I interpreted for him. And he, he actually wrote a, a blurb for one of my books on U.S.-Japan relations. Mm. So I met some some very well-known people. And So so are, are you allowed to talk about the uh, the doing uh, interp- interpretation for... Uh, George Lucas or Steve Jobs, or were those piled under an NDA? Uh, there was no NDA. I mean, I wouldn't comment in detail about them, but when I interpreted for Steve Jobs, it was just an interview done by Wired Magazine, mm-hmm. the Japanese edition mm-hmm. of Wired Magazine. So we went out to, this was before he'd been hired back or he'd moved back to Apple. It was when he was running Next. Right. And it was at the in the last years of when he was running next, and we went out and, and interviewed him. And I just remember him talking a lot about education. He was very interested in education. Mm-hmm. Uh, with George Lucas, one of the highlights of my interpreting career, I think, was actually going to Japan uh, with him and cool. people from his company and being on stage at Tokyo Disneyland when they had the opening ceremony for the Star Tours ride. That was that's that awesome. was a big thrill for me. Yeah. Pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty good. And yeah. that was your Sounds most like boring. That. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was that was a lot. Of fun. And then interpreting for Tezuka, but interpreting is you know it's pretty stressful work. Yeah. Uh, it's mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of tension involved if things start going wrong. So. Yeah. It's very different from translation. I've done a lot of different kinds of translation too. Uh, you know, I, a few years ago I translated with my colleague Beth Carey who's also uh, unusual and she does both interpreting and translation, but we did the Miyazaki Hayao autobiographical mm-hmm. uh, compendiums, starting point and turning point. Mm-hmm. In Japanese, it's uh, Shupatsutan and Horikaishitan. Mm-hmm. And these are huge books with everything that Miyazaki has ever said or thought about or, <laughs> or, <laughs> Those must be very big. or mused yeah. about, he's, he's a, pondered. There's many thoughts and things yeah, he said. Yeah, that was like <laughs> yeah. too. But it does, that was a lot of fun, too, because it led me to a lot of things I didn't know about. He's interested in everything, and I, I'm a, Cats, quite yeah. a generalist. I'm interested in a lot of weird areas. And in reading in working on his books, I, you know, I went to Japan, and I not only met him, but I was able to go to a lot of the place that he ta- places that he talks about. For example, some of the, um, the hot spring baths that are used as... And, and, and they're referenced in in some of his movies. Do you fan? Do you fan? Is that right? Uh, no, oh, like oh. in Spirited Away, I think uh, he has some some of these really old, like Sekizenkan in in uh, Nagano Prefecture Nagano? or Guma Prefecture. He used he he referenced some of these places, mm-hmm. and of course now there are multiple hot spring baths in Japan. They say we were referenced in Spirited Away. They're sort of like. You know, places back east that would say, well, George Washington slept here. <laughs> yeah. He cut down my cherry tree. Yeah. Yeah. yeah if, I had a, if I had a hot spring bath in Japan, I would definitely <laughs> yeah. definitely say that yeah. whether or not it was true. I went, I went to a place in that's Taiwan right. that said that. That's and right. <laughs> it, it, it definitely did look like Spirited Away, though. I was, I was convinced. Um, so let's see. I, I, I hate to do this to you, but I see that you, you worked on Ghost in the Shell. Yes. And I'm just curious what you think about the the American movie. Well, I saw it twice. Really? That's oh, wow. That's way more times than I've seen it. <laughs> How, what did you think? Well, you know, I, I spent a lot of time working on uh, Shiro's manga, not just Ghost in the Shell, mm-hmm. but Orion and yeah. uh, other works as well. So, uh, and, and, you know, man-machine interface. And so, uh, you know, I spent... A few years deep into Shiro's brain, basically. So that's, that's a deep I, I was really yeah, interested yeah. to see. I was really interested to see the movies and the movie, and uh, I, I mean, I, I thought it was flawed in some ways. Mm-hmm. I thought the casting was wrong. That's, that's what I hear. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but that's an easy criticism to make. I think the the main criticism I have is. And it's not necessarily a criticism, it's more like a personal preference. But I like the original manga because actually Kashiro has a wonderful sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And when he's depicting this near future, there's a lot of 
crossover with what we're seeing today in terms of you know AI and cyborg cyborgification of people and uh, networks just being ubiquitous. Um, but he has a wonderful sense of humor. It's this kind of tongue-in-cheek quality, and I love his drawings. I just I just love that world that he created, and. I thought in the live action film that they lost most of the humor, which is it's really too bad, but I guess inevitable for a Hollywood film. Of course, in Oshie's animated version, a lot of that humor also drops out. Yeah. But hmm. I like the original manga. I, I like the, the, you know, in Japanese, what they call the nori. I like the, the, the style that, that Shiro has, mm -hmm. the tongue in cheek style and the sort of chaotic, uh, high tech, uh, retro high-tech universe that that he envisions and i can really relate to it i just i just want to think of the the live action movie as a as a sequel to lost in translation and then i feel better yeah and i don't <laughs> want to criticize the movie i don't want to criticize the movie too much because you know i mean it was fun uh and it's just difficult to get a movie made yeah. it's uh, my my hat is off to anybody who can make movies. that's, that's you know, true mm-hmm that's true. Not an easy thing to do. Well, uh, I think that's all the questions we have. Um, thank you very much for, for coming on the show again. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, I've given you a lot of information. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you for, for lis listening and answering to all, uh, all of our questions. Um, I want to let everyone know how to get in touch with you um, through your website, uh, jai2.com. Yeah, that's J-A-I and the number 2.com. And everyone should pick up the Osamu Tezuka story, uh, which Fred Schott translated, and it's 900 pages. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it is really, the art's really cool. Um, translation's very, very cool and amazing. And um, yeah, if you want to know about, as Fred said, the Showa era, uh, Osamu Tezuka, mm -hmm. the history of manga, mm -hmm. the history of anime, if you're interested in any of those things, then this book is for you, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, also Manga Manga, I really enjoy. Uh, so everyone pick that up also. Um, oh, yes, and uh, Fred is also on the executive board of the International Manga Awards, so you know where to send those bribes, wink, wink, <laughs> if, you're, if you're entering. Um, yeah, if anybody listening is interested in submitting manga, don't submit them to me, but uh, <laughs> go on the web and search for the International Manga Award, which was run by the Japanese government. Um, it's run by the foreign ministry and, uh, it's a wonderful award and it's worth looking into if you're an artist and you have a work that you'd like to submit. Don't send it to me. Mm -hmm. so is, that, is that for <laughs> amateur artists who are making manga and who want to just, um, it's mainly people who are published. I mean, mm -hmm. you could be an amateur, but you probably have to be published okay. on some level. Yeah. Is Kindle okay? Because <laughs> uh, I can do I that. Have, yeah, I think it has to be paper at this point. Uh, yeah, yeah. And and I was joking. Don't send bribes to Fred. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you need no, to send the to, to Tofugu. Just yeah. send money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Send bribes to Tofugu. <laughs> yeah, and we'll we'll make sure it gets and, to the right people. Yeah, and at, at this point, we need more train whistles. Yeah, that's what we need. More that's train right. whistles. Mm -hmm. More train whistles. Yeah. And and one day when I when I write my train manga, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna send it to you guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. After we stop recording, Fred, I hope you're available for a couple hours to hear our train manga pitch. <laughs> yeah, I want a panel by panel break. But. Okay, cool. I, I don't know if we've gotten that far, but yeah, <laughs> we've talked about talked about it a lot. Yeah. For some reason. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening, <laughs> and we'll see you next week. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much, Fred. Thank you, Fred. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.